Someone suggested training with stress as a possible topic for this talk. And it struck me as a good idea. There is a fair amount of stress in the world right now. There are wars in Eastern Europe and the Middle East, and in how many other places that we don't even hear about. There are floods, terrible wildfires, earthquakes, climate disaster. The list seems to go on and on. Not to mention issues in the local community, nor in your own home and family. So I'll begin by talking a bit about the nature of stress, what it is, how it arises, and most importantly, what can we do to train with it? The dictionary has a longish definition of stress, including a physical, chemical, or emotional factor that causes bodily or mental tension. And that's the kind of stress I'll be addressing in this talk. There is no shortage of books and articles advising us on how to deal with stress by eating healthy foods, exercising, getting plenty of sleep, drinking lots of water, listening to soothing music, and using various psychological techniques. I'm sure some of those are very helpful. Some even recommend meditation as a stress relief practice. The Buddha used the word dukkha to mean stress. Dukkha can also be translated as suffering, unsatisfactoriness, or dis-ease. I'll be talking here about stress, something that causes bodily or mental tension in the Buddhist context of dukkha. Not long ago, a sentence jumped out at me from a book of Ajahn Chah's teaching. Ajahn Chah, as some of you know, was a great meditation master in the Thai forest tradition who trained a number of today's Western Theravadan Buddhist monks. What he said that jumped out was, Dukkha is noble truth. That short, sweet sentence, Dukkha is noble truth. That is, stress is noble truth. This opened my eyes to a new way of looking at stress. Instead of seeing it only as something to be avoided at all cost or gotten rid of, now it took on a positive quality of noble truth. Those familiar with the Buddha's teaching of the four noble truths will recognize this. The first truth is the truth of stress. All living beings are subject to stress. And this is sometimes translated as life is suffering, which has a gloomy sound to it, doesn't it? I'm not a Pali or Sanskrit scholar, but it makes sense to me to say all living beings are subject to suffering or stress. And from here on, I'm going to tend to use the word stress as the translation of dukkha. So dukkha is noble truth. And it isn't the only noble truth. 
Following from it are the cause of stress, the cessation of stress, and the way to the cessation of stress. I'll be getting back to these. The Pali Canon names three sources of stress, the stress of pain, the stress of fabrication, and the stress of change. I'm going to be concentrating on the second of these, the stress of fabrication, because it seems to be very prominent in upsetting the mind. Fabrication, sankara, is a technical term that literally means putting together. It is the mind's intentional activity through which it shapes its experience. One dictionary definition of fabrication is to make something up in order to cause deception. And if we think about it, that's what ignorance does. It encourages us to make things up in order to deceive us. Not intentionally, but that's just the way ignorance is. And then these made-up products of ignorance form our intention and our actions. Here's an example. Recently, I had a tough dental appointment. It was for a filling between the farthest back tooth and the tooth right in front of it. Before he began working, the dentist mentioned that it would be difficult because of being on the far back tooth and because the cavity was on the surface of the root itself. Oh boy, I thought, if it's going to be difficult for him, how's it going to be for me? (laughs) There was a lot of Novocaine followed by a lot of drilling. Two kinds of drilling. The usual high-pitched, screechy drill, and then one that sounded and felt like a jackhammer. As I lay there with my head down near the floor, or so it seemed, and my jaws propped open by some kind of terrible torture device, (laughs) I kept feeling my muscles tense up. Dental drilling, it seemed, was a source of stress. What if the drill strikes a nerve? What if the tooth breaks, etc.? There's your fabrication. What if this happens morphs into, I know this will happen, and I need to do something to make it stop? The dentist had said I could raise a hand if I felt any pain. I could just raise it and make him stop. (laughs) It was a strong temptation. The good news is that my meditation practice kicked in and helped me to let go of that mental and bodily tension. I took deep breaths and reminded myself, right now, this moment, there is no pain. There is no pain. There is no pain. It was a long haul, and it was tough. But by the time it ended, there had been no pain. I think that dentist did a great job. The Buddha taught that birth is stress, disease is stress, old age is stress, death is stress, getting what one wants, no, not getting what one wants is stress, getting what one doesn't want is stress, such as a dental filling, 
Being with those one dislikes is stress. Separation from those one loves is stress. There was a 20th century rock and roll song I like to quote. It was by the Rolling Stones, and it's called Satisfaction, or the long title is I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I think it's a very Buddhist song, whether intentionally or not. The guy in the song is trying various things. He's riding around in his car, and the various things he's trying include smoking cigarettes, looking for sex, When he's riding around in his car and when he's watching his TV, there are voices telling him all kinds of useless information. And none of these things gives him any satisfaction. What can a guy do? And I'll get back to that later. So I'll try to get through this next part without tearing up, but I can't guarantee it. In April 1952, the USA, that is our country, set off the first televised atomic bomb. I was five years old. We had a new, our TV was new to us then, and the family gathered in the living room to watch this event. First there was the initial blast, and then the great mushroom cloud rising into the sky. Following on from that, in elementary school, we had periodic disaster drills, and I knew that disaster meant nuclear bomb, where we had to curl up under our seats, put our hands over our heads, and pray. Did anyone really ever think, I wondered, even as a child, that doing this would provide any protection from a nuclear bomb? The threat of nuclear annihilation was the backdrop of my life until the teenage years, when, of course, the hormones kicked in. However, even then, I can recall a sunny October morning in 1962, when I began the day by wondering whether I preferred to catch the school bus and die at school with my friends or stay home and die with my family. Being a teenager by then, of course, I chose my friends. (laughs) That was the Cuban Missile Crisis. All living beings are subject to stress. Like the guy in the Rolling Stones song, I've tried a number of methods for dealing with stress, some of them even having to do with illegal substances and illicit activities and some with peaceful protest activities and marches. But the stress was always there, twisting my guts and stealing my peace of mind. This brings us to the second noble truth, the cause of stress, which is craving and clinging. The Buddha taught that we base our clinging on information received by way of the five skandhas, which are the components of our psychophysical unit. Form, sensation, thought, activity or intention, and consciousness. These are ever-changing components of our existence that it's easy to mistake for a fixed self. 
sensual desire, that based on feeling, entangles us in thoughts about how to get and enjoy sensual pleasures. This involves our absorption in planning how we're going to get what we want, whether it's tasty food or the enjoyment of other sensual pleasures. I've mentioned before, I know, the occasion of standing in line to serve myself at a buffet meal here at the Abbey, where a box of chocolates was being offered, and the stress I underwent in craving a particular type of those chocolates, of which there were only a few pieces in the box, and I was near the end of the line. And how I was finally able to be still with the craving and realize that it really didn't matter what kind of chocolate I got. In the scheme of the universe, first of all, I could be grateful for the offering of chocolate, and second, I could really understand that what I had for lunch didn't matter in the great scheme of things. When I reached the chocolates, I almost laughed out loud at seeing that nobody else had taken even one of those few pieces of the kind I liked. <laughs> we can cling to our ways of doing things. This is the skanda of activity or intention and is an insistence that things have to be done a certain way or else. When stuck in this form of clinging, it doesn't matter whether that particular way of doing something is necessary or even if it produces the result we want. Let's consider the example of the task of sinks and surfaces at kitchen cleanup, which is basically wiping the sinks, countertops, and tables. It isn't rocket science. But when I'm working on that task, I have some pretty strong views about how it should be done. Neither the buckets of soapy water nor the cloths should be placed on the metal shelf next to the janitor sink because that's dirty. The water should be changed when it gets dirty. The sinks only need to be washed after one of the meals, and I can never remember whether it's lunch or medicine meal, but don't you dare wash them after the other meal. There should always be counter-wiping cloths available around the kitchen, and at least one compost bucket should always be available while the compost is being taken out, and so on. <laughs> at times, I've gotten pretty worked up over some of these issues. Stressed out, you might say. Kitchen cleanup is a great opportunity to bring the stillness of meditation into the activity of daily life and to work in harmony with others. Now we can consider the craving and clinging based on the sense of thought. For instance, an insistence that certain views are right, regardless of the effects of holding on to them, or the notion that simply holding on to a particular view will make us somehow holy or better than other people. And this is clinging to thought. It causes stress. It's obvious in the realm of political views how easy it is to get stuck in this form of clinging. One person can believe a particular candidate or office holder is an idiot, while others believe that person is almost the savior of the universe. I believe that this is one thing meant by the rules for meditation scripture, when it advises us to think of neither good nor evil, 
consider neither right nor wrong. Not to cling to the views of the judgmental mind. For example, perhaps I have a view that peace is better than war. This is actually true in my case. However, even my superficial acquaintance with world history suggests that war has been occurring in the human realm for many centuries and in many places. This is the human realm, after all. There's nothing wrong with wishing for peace or even working with causes that promote peace. The problem happens when anger gets into it. Hatred for that warmongering leader, for example. Suddenly there I am, at war. Watching out for the judgmental mind and with kindness loosening its grip goes a long way towards helping with stress. I find that from my personal experience. Watching out for the judgmental mind. Ah, there it is. Okay, now do I want to cling to it or can I let it pass? The sense of consciousness can lead to craving and clinging regarding beliefs about who we are and what kind of person we should be and or can become. In other words, beliefs in a separate self. Clinging to the sense of consciousness, we can nourish and maintain an idea of ourselves as a separate and permanent being and begin our fabrications from there. I'm a good or a bad person, for example. Sounds simplistic, but when I take a moment to reflect on this, it appears clearly in my view and thinking, sometimes as perfectionism. As Buddhist practitioners, we follow a set of moral precepts, not to kill, to steal, to lie, and so on. When I catch myself saying that which is not true, lying, this can contradict the consciousness of myself as a good person or a good Buddhist, or reinforce the notion of myself as a bad person or a bad Buddhist. Say someone apologizes to me for making a sharp remark, and I reply, oh, it wasn't so bad. Although well-meaning, this may not be true. It might be a lie. The remark might have been very painful to me. Would it be more helpful or kinder to both the other person and myself if I were to say something like, thank you, I appreciate your apology? That is, to acknowledge rather than dismiss their recognition of their mistake. We all make mistakes, don't we? So now we're going to get down to the crux of the matter, training with stress. How do we do that? The Buddha taught the Noble Eightfold Path as the way to the cessation of suffering. Right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, and right meditation. And I'm going to mention a few approaches I've found helpful. Helpful. First one is taking responsibility, an aspect of right thought. The Buddha taught that each of us is the owner of their karma. This means being mindful that our choices bring consequences. 
that what happens to us is, to a large extent, the result of our own choices. I say to a large extent because karma, cause and effect in the moral realm, is only one of the laws of the universe. The weather, for example, isn't something I can influence by choice, although I've tried to do that by moving to some of the warmer spots in the United States. I can, however, take responsibility for my responses to weather conditions, such as layering up in winter. I'm only really half this size. (laughs) And drinking more fluids in summer. I can also take responsibility for my emotional reaction to weather conditions by working on letting go of elation during heat and despair during cold times. I say working on because I'm not there yet. I'm working on it. Taking responsibility also means letting go of blaming. It's easy for me to blame less than perfect behavior on the weather, such as, if it were warm, I wouldn't be so irritable. (laughs) However, that's a surefire invitation to stress. I've found that blaming doesn't help and in fact only hurts me, anyway. As a for- it's a form of cultivating greed, hatred, and delusion. Wise discernment, which we cultivate through practicing meditation and the precepts, can point to actions of our own and others that are helpful and harmful, which can guide our own actions in the future. And this is not the same as blaming. Another remedy for stress is recalling humility. Although we are responsible for our thoughts, words, and deeds, this doesn't mean we're in charge of running the universe. Sometimes, when our actions are less than skillful, rather than blaming and beating ourselves up, stressing out, we can confess to ourselves and to another, if it seems good, that we have done harm, and apologize if necessary. In owning up to our mistakes, we resolve to do better, at the same time as realizing that our mistake hasn't resulted in the end of the world. This latter part, realizing that it's not the end of the world, goes a long way in reducing the stress of self-blame. What self is there to blame? As we learn to cherish our small place in the scheme of things, we can also practice gratitude. Reverend Master Oswin has given some fine talks on gratitude, which are on our website. So I'll only say here that I do recommend gratitude. It works well for me as a means of dealing with stress. I find I can't be grateful and stressed out at the same time. And this leads to Reverend Master G.U.'s teaching of doing the very best that we can. That's right action. That it is enough to do the very best we can. If the results aren't what we wanted, there's no grounds for blame. We've done the very best we can. It also helps to trust that others are doing the very best that they can, especially when the judgmental mind steps into the picture. An aspect of generosity, the first of the six paramitas, or practices of a bodhisattva, 
is giving the benefit of the doubt, trusting that the other person who has offended us is doing the best that they can. I find this can be helpful not only in current times, but when resentments based on past relationships arise. Seeing that the person I'm resentful of or mad at was doing the very best they could, and if I can't quite see it, acknowledging that I'm willing to see it and asking the Buddhas and ancestors for help. The final thing I'm going to mention is stillness, including daily practice of meditation, right meditation. Keeping up our practice generates stillness. We can perceive this in those who have been training for a long time. It's what drew me to train with Reverend Master Jiu. That stillness was extremely visible, obvious. But even after a short time, meditation practice generates a stillness that can keep stress at bay or allow us to live with it without harming ourselves or others. As the scripture of great wisdom teaches, in the mind of the bodhisattva, who is truly one with great wisdom, the obstacles dissolve. May we all take refuge in this mind of great wisdom and realize the truth. Thank you all for being here.